podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger Podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Hello everybody, welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast and it's a really good one today, it's in two parts this interview, really enjoyed the chat with Mike Selvey, the former Middlesex Glamorgan, England cricketer, he's also been on TMS, he's a journalist, he's a pretty much everything, he's now residing as a president of the Cricket Writers Club and of Middlesex County Cricket Club. He's a man I hold in high esteem as a broadcaster and journalist myself. I wouldn't ever put myself in his category, but he's uh, certainly somebody that's achieved an awful lot in the sport of cricket. I urge you not just to listen to the first part, but to listen to both parts of this chat, because some great answers from Mike Selvey as we go through this edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. Thank you to tvsportsblog.com for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. It's a two-parter and it's also got a couple of little additions on it as well this uh, this time if you uh, follow me on twitter at cricket underscore badger i put out an invitation for any of you really but for mainly for student broadcasters out there to send me up to five minutes of audio and we've got the first one of those in part two and we've also got a charity appeal this podcast is published on saturday the 23rd and today bursted Cricket Club are doing a charity function. I'll let them explain it all to you at the end of this podcast. But I urge you to stay tuned. After I finish the first part of the chat with Mike, stay tuned, listen to the Bearstead Cricket Club appeal. And if you can donate, then please do, because they're doing uh, what they're doing for a very, very good cause indeed. That's at the end of part one. And at the end of part two, you'll hear the first of these submissions, the five-minute piece. This first one, it's all about confused selections, and it's been sent in by Luke Dunning. But let's get into the main event. We welcome him for the first time to the Cricket Badger podcast. On this edition, I give you Mike Selvey. It's that Badger style. It's a pleasure then on the Cricket Badger podcast to welcome for the first time on the show, Mike Selvey. Mike, how are you? I'm very well under the circumstances, I think. You know, how well you can be when you're locked in your house and you can't go anywhere and you're too old and you're in the vulnerable group. So, uh, yeah, I'm bearing up all right. Only just crept into that vulnerable group, haven't you? <laughs> well, a couple of years into it. A couple of years into it. You know, how far do you need to be? How far do you need to be out of group? It, it surprised me, Mike, actually, when I looked at your age, because you, you never struck me as being that old. No, it surprises me too. <laughs> I, um, I have to say, um, I've got some relatively young kids, so it's uh, that keeps me young. They're all 23, so that keeps me relatively young, I suppose. So, yeah, the age creeps up on you, doesn't it? And looking through, um, I kind of just read your Crick Info page and what have you before I gave you a call. And in, in recent years, I've always looked at you as being somebody that isn't that hairy. But some of the early pictures of you, you've, you've got plenty of hair, <laughs> chin and on the head, haven't you? Well, it changed over the years, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I used to have uh, used to have quite a lot. And then gradually it started to go. And there comes a point where you don't hide it anymore. So you, <laughs> you say, well, if it's going, you'll take, you know, get rid of the lot. And then, then, and then you look so cool, you see take it off and, and everybody thinks it's you know it's a great look so um i'm not i'm not going to challenge that and much easier to look after in the current climate with no barbers open as well, well. it's 
it's it's it's a piece of cake, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, just just run the razor of it soft and uh, job done. You're going to take on the cricket badger twenty questions today. Um, you've had a look I am. At, had a look at them already, and and we might as well start with question number one. Yeah. If okay. not a cricketer, or if not cricket, because you've done a few things in your time. You were a cricketer, international cricketer. You've um, been a writer for The Guardian, a journalist. Still, you still do a bit, bit, bit of cricket writing, but uh, a commentator as well. If you'd not gone down that route, where would life have taken you? I actually started in cricket, in, as professional cricket, quite late. I was 24 when I first started, because I'd, I'd, I'd been through university and so forth. And I finished university when I just turned 24. I had, well, there were several things where at one time I thought I might quite like to go into the med office, actually. I was really, really interested in, in that side of my, my degree, which was a BSc, geography BSc, and it specialised in climatology, and I, I quite liked that, and uh, I thought that might be a career for me. And then I ran that across them, and they said, oh, no, we don't, we don't hire um, geographers who know that. We, we, we now take mathematicians, and we give them crash courses in climatology, so that knocked down the head. And then I did a teaching qualification postgraduate at Cambridge and so I guess you know that's where I saw myself going I, but, but as it transpired I was a pretty rubbish teacher uh, I wasn't vocational at all I was a lousy teacher I, I, I just had no patience and I, I you know I, I think I actually taught him but I, I believe I taught Jenny Gunn's father was my, right, one okay. of my very first jobs yeah Jenny Gunn the, the very esteemed uh, England cricketer of course he was a he was a footballer. He, he played for Nottingham Forest. Not back then, he didn't. But uh, right. my, that's where I started off. I tell you what, I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have been a journalist, which is curious, isn't it? But I never had any ambitions to do that. Okay, and obviously that came to you later on after after cricket. But the... it, it, it did, yeah. I mean, it fell into my lap really, and in a, in a strange sort of strange sort of way. It's not something I ever thought I'd ever ever go into, and yet though I did, I was thirty three years doing it, much longer than I was a cricketer. So how did that fall into your lap then? You'd, you'd, you'd finished oh, playing cricket. cricket by the time you started writing, did you? Or? That's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that, that's kind of a roundabout story, but it genuinely was something I drifted into, and probably at the right time, because when I started, I, I, I finished playing sort of midway through 1984 season, and uh, I hadn't got anything to go to. I had no, you know, no career to fall back on at that stage, and I did a little bit of supply teaching. I went, to, I went abroad... Two test matches. I played my own way and did some test match special because I knew Peter Baxter and he was the producer then. And, um, and I did a couple of tests doing that and I thought, well, this is, this is quite nice. And I like that. Um, and then I wrote a couple of pieces, magazine pieces. And I wrote a piece for The Guardian about touring India because I toured India with England and, and that was an India tour. That was Gower's India tour. I went, okay. I, I went out for, for a couple of weeks. On, and I did a couple of pieces of them, and they were right, and I thought, well, maybe I could do this. And I got various commissions, and I'd started doing stuff with Guardian, and then gradually more and more and more, and then in 1987, I was great correspondent. So, And I was great correspondent for nearly 30 years, yeah. Did the writing come quite naturally to you? It's the most natural part of my education. I did a, I did a, a science degree. I did a, 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 a levels. I did physics, maths, and geography. Geography, I was all right. Physics and maths, I hated and I, and I did those, and then I had to do um, back at university and stuff like that. And I was far better at English and things. And, and I don't know whether it was career advice or, or, or whatever made me get in that, that field. But for me, the writing was always a very natural thing to do. It was never formulaic for me. And I'm not saying this is the right way to do it. I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. But for me, it was always just writing reports or, or writing comment pieces or, or writing... Um, profiles or whatever you're doing 
it's it's a conversation on paper, if you understand me. Yes. So that and that's how I try to do my job, and, and it's served me pretty well. People seem happy with it. They, I didn't get fired, so you know, it must have attracted some people anyway. And that that's how I did it. I was a totally untrained journalist. Uh, how did you find the change in dynamic? Because obviously, one minute you're you're a player and you're the man being written yeah. about. The next minute you're the the man who is writing about yeah. the player. So how how did that uh, fit you? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because. You know, I was, uh, that, when I first started doing like county reports, I, I didn't do international stuff for about three years. The county stuff, you know, I know the players and I'm familiar with the players. You know, I'm only a year on when I started from playing against them. And so there was a familiarity to it. And I guess, if I'm really honest about it, you, you write it so you hope they're going to look at it and think, you know, well, that's cool, or that's self, you know, or that's funny, or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. So in a way, you're writing for the wrong reason. Gradually get out of that. And I, and I hope what you eventually cultivate is, a, is an idea that people know who you are. I think I always had good relationships with, with the players. I think so. A few exceptions, but I, mostly I had a really good relationship with people. And I think they respected that, A, I play the game, although I don't think that is necessarily a, a, a prerequisite for being a good cricket journalist. I think too much is made of that. But I do think it, it helps in your, um, gives you some credibility guess yeah um but also that i that i was fully prepared to say what i thought and to play my own furrow and uh, in, in how i saw the games and how i saw players and things like that and they know that that came from a reasonably informed source if you like and i, I think they respected mostly respected them before it as a journalist Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look and give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. There's a difference, isn't there, between slating somebody and write, writing a reasoned piece about why you think X, Y, Z. And I guess that goes a long way towards a player's understanding of where you're coming from. Yeah, I guess so. You, I think it's too easy for players to dismiss people because they, you know, how many wickets did they get or how many matches did they play or whatever. And it's, it's actually, it, it helps. But, you know, I, I, strictly as a journalist, I probably saw oh, well over 300 test matches. I have colleagues and former colleagues who would have seen that many test matches too who didn't play first-class cricket. But, you know, you see that amount of cricket and you don't half get some judgment. And also, the more you see the... And the older you get, the more you can you can actually put stuff into context. Yes, which I think is also important in um, in sports reporting and sports journalism. It's being able to put something into a context. Now, um, so the experience of actually doing something is really important. You know that that's good to be able to uh, identify with somebody. You know, if it's a, a batsman who's done something, or if you're or if you're a bowler, you can identify with with how you have to bowl and what these things are. But actually, to, to be able to then say, yes, but I saw him do that back then or whatever, that puts it into context as well. And I, and I think it's very easy to lose that context if you if you get rid of experience. It was a conversation I had quite recently, actually, that this very thing, and I think there's a balance to be drawn in all these, in all these things. I think the sport particularly needs that context. I, I had a conversation, Mike, with um, a player once, and we were talking about what you mentioned a few minutes ago about do you need to have played the game to actually be able to write about it or commentate on it? And I said, well, surely, I mean, I, I've played club cricket, never played county cricket, never played test cricket, but 
I think the, the dynamic at every single level is is, is quite similar. And we, we kind of came to a, an agreement towards the end of it that, yeah, you've watched enough cricket to understand it, you've watched enough, cri- enough cricket to interpret it. The one thing that maybe, James, you haven't got, that maybe Mike Selvey has got, is that you've never had your mortgage riding on the fact that you, you need to get over the line in that final over of a one-day game or you need to win the championship to get another contract or something like that. That's the difference, maybe. Well, unless you've got a thousand words to turn over in 40 minutes before, before a deadline that you can't afford to miss... Um, I'm, I'm genuinely. I'll give you an example of that if you if, if you want. It's um, it, I can't. You know, I'm, I'm rubbish with the years. But it was the it was the year we got bowled out for 46 in the Caribbean in, in Trinidad, which you you, you may or may not remember. Curly Ambrose bowled out. I do. Yeah. And when you're in the Caribbean, you're editionalising. So you're you're writing your first piece for the first edition at uh, tea time, usually. It's about four hours or five hours time difference depends on the on where the clocks are at that stage. But you write your first piece at tea time, and then you write your second piece at close of play. Usually, don't usually go into a third edition. Sometimes, if you're a little bit further um, west in Jamaica, you you might even have a, th- a third edition. But by and large, that's what you're doing. And and in the usual circumstances, you can write your first edition piece, and it will stand up, and you just you just maybe top and tail it a little bit, update it for the last edition. That's how the second edition. That's how it worked. And that particular day, it worked very well up to the point where England, so first edition piece was essentially England need about 180 to win test match. They dropped a couple of catches, but they only need 180 to win the test match in Trinity. And that's your first edition piece. And then the second edition piece is just going to be, you know, England made a, um, a good start or a bad start in after you know, lost a couple of weeks or whatever happened in that bit, you top and tail it. Yeah. And of course, what happened was they lost a week of the first ball and then gradually wicket started to go and they started to go. And it gets later and later in the session, and the wickets are starting to fall. And there comes a point where you can't top and tail it anymore, where you cannot, you cannot just add bits to it. You have to just tear it up and start again because the story, the narrative, has entirely yeah. changed. And that's what it was: forty minutes to write a thousand words. And, a, you know, a few of my it, colleagues it, in the it, in the press box these days they hate T Twenties because the the nature of a T Twenty yeah. is it can change in the last six balls, and all Absolutely. of a sudden everything you've written is invalid. Absolutely. You know, you, we, you sometimes, you know, I've been in situations again in the Caribbean where you, you have to write, you have to write two, essentially two stories ready to go. And that's the only way you can do it. Um, because, you know, if, if, oh, I can remember one game in particular, you know, there's like four to win off the last ball of a game. Bang, absolutely bang on deadline. Couldn't go any later. Had to go on the whistle. No mistakes on it. And you have to write two pieces essentially. It's the only way you can do it. So you might talk about, you know, bowling the last ball and they need four to win or six to win or whatever the last ball, um, which I've done, but I can tell you there's no bigger pressure than that either. And you, and if your job's on the line with that too, if you if you, if you didn't do that too often, they'd find somebody else who did. Yeah. I will, I will remember what you've just said next time I'm speaking to that player. I will, I will add that yeah, into, yeah. The, into the argument. <laughs> so let's take you back to the start. Who was the biggest influence on your career? Who, who was the, the guiding light that well, uh, inspired you? Well, there'd be more than one, wouldn't there? I mean, it started from mum and dad. And, and one of my granddads, actually, was a, was a, he was a lovely critic. Well, I never, never saw him play, of course, and I, I had a lot about him. He was a minor, a Staffordshire minor, and he, but he was a batsman, um, which was very unusual. Uh, a good, I mean, a, a good batsman who had aspirations to play county and couldn't get in. Anywhere near Warwickshire because they didn't have miners, weren't batsmen, and you didn't, you know. 
but I kind of got a, um, a love for the game from him and from mum and dad as well, who only, you know, as you get older, do you, re- do you understand the kind of sacrifices I suppose they made in order to to allow me to play and to get the kit and stuff like that. You know, they weren't flush and, and you know, all those things helped. I had two in particular brilliant schoolmasters who helped me, you know, and we, and we all needed that. I went to a school that, that played cricket. And and then latterly, when I got actually when I got into cricket itself, when I started playing uh, Middlesex in particular, the person who I looked to for uh, as a mentor, if you want to go, was Fred Titmus. And Fred Fred was was a really really uh, I mean he was a great cricketer, apart from you know, two thousand eight hundred wickets. You know you're not, you're not a mug, are you? And uh, one thing he saw me play every day, so he knew my game inside out. So he was effectively my coach. So if something was not quite right, he'd be able to tell me what it was, and he and he would be able to say, "Look, it's not, you know, that." Some people might say that's, uh, you know, that doesn't go according to the um, the coaching books. You're not doing this and this. So but there are things that you do when you're bowling well that people might say the same things about. It's the same for everybody. Everybody has quirks or or things that are different, and he could do that. And he had a he had a, a terrific capacity too for implanting ideas into you, but making you think that it was you that thought of the ideas, which was a really, really good skill to be able to, to have. So he wasn't indoctrinating you. You were, you were kind of teaching yourself subliminally, if, if, if that makes sense. He was very important to me. I'd imagine anyway, though, I mean, you've already said, I mean, he's a fantastic player in his own right. So he's the sort of person that you'd listen to from your side of things yeah. anyway, wouldn't he? Oh, crikey, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't, you know, you, you, and his experience, you know, Fred's first game for Middlesex was in 19... 19- 1949, you know, so his experience went through right through, and he played his last game, I think, in 1982. Fred turned up one day to uh, for a cup of tea, and he'd finished playing by then, and the pitch at Lords looked like it was going to rag a bit, so my buddy said to him, fancy a game, Fred? He said, yeah, well, I'll get some king. He had a game, got three for 30. <laughs> so, and that was 1982. So, you know, it's a lot, you've seen a lot of cricketers in there in that time, haven't you? And, you know, and, and a lot of information to pass on to you. What's been your best moment in cricket? If I could take you back to any 24 hours in your in your lifetime, which one would you want to relive oh, again? Oh, crikey. I can't pick one, can I? Can't pick two? I'll, let, right? I'll let you have two. I'll let you have two. Let me have two like Desert Island. This is, isn't it? <laughs> we, the proudest moment of my, my cricket career was playing, playing for England. My, the first test match for, for England was just memorable, and in particular, one moment in that where my my day, but I peaked, I peaked very much too early in my career. I peaked. When my test career peaked in the first half hour, <laughs> um, that notwithstanding, you know, to to bowl Vivrich's out for a low score in, in a summer in which he scored 800 runs, the best part of in, in four test matches, was just spectacular for me, and and that was unquestionably the high point of my career. But the other thing I would I would uh, I would mention was when Middlesex won the championship in uh, in 1976. It was the first time they'd won in, ne- in nearly three decades, and and that was a a team that had gradually been built up. It didn't have superstars in it, but it was a really, really good team. Um, and it was the start of, of what became a really successful couple of decades for, for Middlesex cricket. And that, and that was that was a real high point for me. 1976, then, is a, a decent, memorable year for you. I mean, you, you talk about that first Test match, Roy Fredericks, Viv Richards and Alvin Kallich running in your back pocket fairly early in your first 20 yeah. balls in Test match cricket. That game yeah. at Old Trafford. It has to be said, though, Mike, that Viv Richards came back to haunt you a little bit, didn't he, that summer? 
<laughs> well, just a. I mean, he he haunted everybody, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, he was he was. I mean, he was just unbelievable. He's an unbelievable cricketer, and 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 bloke too. He's a, he's a really good friend of mine, and Viv. You know, I I, play, I played that first test match. He got a hundred in the second innings of that game, incidentally, and then. The next time I played against him, I didn't play the next test. And the, the one after that, I played at the Oval, and he got best part of 300. And how he didn't, how he didn't go, or how he got out, I didn't know if he knows. He suddenly got out for 290 something. How did he get out of it? Anybody know why he got out? There's no reason for him to get out. He just did. He could, he could, he could have got 400 easy. I mean, he got 200 on the first day, and I think he's the only player ever to not open the batting and get 200 in a day. Is that right? Still, I think. Yeah, yeah I think so. I may be wrong now, but certainly at that stage, nobody had ever, um, who wasn't an opener, had ever got 200 in a day. And Oh, my goodness me, he really could. But, he, but there was a bit more to Viv than just being a great player. There was the, everything about him, just the aura of him. The, he, was, he was a very threatening player, if, you, if, if that makes sense. He was... He just carried this. I'm trying to think of the right words for him, really. I mean, he was. I wrote a piece had, about him last year, and I, I I described him as the coolest cricketer that ever walked the planet. He just had that swagger, that aura, that just presence about him, didn't he? Presence is right, but he, you know, he uh, he once told me that his whole approach to to the crease, which was a, a theatrical performance, very measured, all the things that he went through, the routines he went through, how he would eyeball the bowler, all those things was a deliberate. Act on his part because he he got nervous like anybody else got nervous, but he he could hide it. He just used to challenge you mentally uh, and physically to some extent, but mentally he would challenge you right from the word off. But he used to say to me, he said, he said, I can smell fear, and and you had you had to buy into that because he didn't mind if you were if you were an average bowler as long as you tried, as long as you as long as you came at him, he respected that. He didn't respect people who gave up, who didn't have a go, you know. He was formidable, absolutely formidable. I've been the best player I've ever seen or played against by a distance. I think uh, the question later on in, in, in this interview with you, uh, if you could swap lives with any player for 24 hours and experience what it's like to be them. If it was me being asked yeah. that question, Viv Richards would be right up there. It'd be fantastic just to be in his body for a bit and just to, to bat like him for even an over. It would be fun when it? it wouldn't be him, but it would be it would be it would be fun though to just to just to know what it's like to feel the ball. We used to call it sweet, yeah. feel the ball sweet off the bat. You know? <laughs> Six wickets in that first Test match. Two more Test matches. No more wickets in that. Three, no, three, no. Te- three test matches, and that was the end of Mike Selvey in an England shirt. Is that? that was, that's why I say I, I peaked a bit earlier. Peaked in the first twenty minutes. I mean, as we said, you came up against Viv Richards in fine fettle. Um, do you ever look back and think I could maybe have got a few more test matches out of myself? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I that, that, that is the kind of regret. Really, I felt that I, I was good enough to do that. I, felt, I certainly, I thought I was. Certainly a better bowler two years later, in fact, in 1978. I, I, I thought I, that, that was really when I was at my best. And I thought, I suppose there was, there were, you know, there, there weren't that many opportunities because Beefy had come through in 77 uh, and Bob um, was still, you know, well, Bob was just cranking up into being the, the, the great bowler that he, that he became. So there was that. But then there, there was the peripheral roles, you know, the third seamer roles that Chris Old played and Mike Hendrick played, mm. John Lever played. Those kind of roles, and 
when I was bowling well, there was no, I, I didn't think that there was anybody better than me at that role when I was bowling well. We were all good, we were all really, really good bowlers. But, you know, I, I, I thought there was almost like there was a hierarchy of it then. Um, and I, I don't know if I ever came, I don't know if I ever came close again, but I'd be disappointed if I, if, if I hadn't. And I think, I think these days I might have been around a group, put it that way. Doubt very much when you finished that third test match, you might have thought, well, I might not play the next one, but I, I doubt very much you went away from that ground thinking that's my last test match ever. Well, I didn't, I didn't, um, to be honest with you, I was, I was a little bit disappointed I didn't play the next test match after the old Trafford run because I got six wickets in the test match. Mm. And I thought played pretty well. Um, and I didn't play the next one. And then, of course, I got brought in on injuries again on the, in the next test match. I got the oval, which was that really flat thing. And I guess, I guess mentally as well, you, you, you're kind of having to start again, aren't you? You've had that initial burst and then you've had to sit back and think, well, I'm not a first choice. And then you come back in again having to prove yourself again almost. Well, I never got picked in an England side as a, as a first choice, you see. Hmm. Um, so the old traffic test was a replacement and then um, the oval was a replacement again. And then even the last test I played in India, and in that I've never been less prepared to be to play in a match of uh, cricket in my life than I, than I did to play in that fifth test match because I wasn't down to play in it. And uh, in fact, I'd, I, I'd been told to come to the ground and then go back to the hotel. My, my then wife had, uh, had arrived in India, then I could go back to the hotel after the, once, once play started. So I just went up for the, for the warm-ups and that. And then a couple of minutes before the toss, Chris Old announced he, he wasn't fit. And, and I got drafted into the team, and, and half an hour later, I'm, I'm, I'm out in the field and bowling. And I probably only bowled about, I don't know, 40, 50 overs in three months, because that was the nature of the tour. I didn't play between test matches, and the, and when I did play, the pitches were, were big turners, most of them. And I got no preparation, and there were no the practice facilities during, you know, during matches were pretty well non-existent, a lot of them. So there wasn't really much opportunity to, to get into any rhythm of playing. And that last test match, I, I just I got cleaned out basically in the in the first innings and never played again. Which was yeah, no, that that was um, that was that was hard to take. But um, I, I, I felt I I felt I was good enough to play more games. Yeah, I spent uh, a, a very pleasurable hour with um, Jack Russell the other day talking to him about his t- his yeah, life and times and. Uh, we, we basically agreed. I mean, I, in my early days, watched Alan Knott down at Kent and just an incredible keeper. And Jack Russell thinks he's the best ever. But he was the man that uh, dropped that uh, chance off Roy Fredericks that uh, kind of maybe diluted your momentum a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, Jack, you see, was, was somebody who, again, is, he suffered for his art, really, didn't he? I don't mean his painting art. I mean, the art of, of wicket-keeping mm. for, for on the sacrifice out on the altar of keeper batsman and with Alec he, you know he was he was about lucky Jack was an absolute master um, I, I I have to agree with him about, about Notty Notty was um, astonishing but you know they, Jack came from just about came from the same breed as, as a lot of great wicket keepers actually which there were around at that time um, you know Notty and Bob Taylor were two of a kind and both unbelievable glovemen. Most of the counties had some really good keepers too. You know, I think Derek Taylor, for example, at Somerset, who was, who was brilliant. Uh, John Murray that I had at, uh, at Middlesex when I first started. Ivan Jones at Glamorgan. You know, these, these are wonderful wicket keepers. Jim Binks, fruit engineer. 
and, and, and Jack was right up with them. He absolutely was. I know you can't believe everything you read on Wikipedia. I, I did read um, Mike Brilly's Art of Captaincy quite a long time ago, and I'm, I must have missed this bit, but he, uh, on Wikipedia page, it says, um, Brilly lamenting his notable skills, his being yours, as an into-the-wind bowler by remarking that his nose seemed to get flatter every year as he'd invariably be asked to bowl into the wind whilst Wayne Daniel and Vincent van der Beyl bowled downhill with the wind behind them. Is that yeah, is an ac- much, accurate assessment? Yeah, that's pretty much it, isn't it? <laughs> Um, I always joke with him. I said the one thing nobody ever said to me in my in my cricket career is which end would you like? Because it, it was always <laughs> at the other end. <laughs> with Wayne, Wayne used to. It was lovely. We were talking to him the other day, actually. Wayne, I mean, on one of these Zoom calls, it was it was really nice. Wayne used to used to used to moan about walking back into the wind all the time. I said it's it's such hard work walking back into this wind. So, yeah, thanks, Wayne. <laughs> It's behind you when you're yeah, away, and it's behind when you. Yeah, but but you know, it's um, having said that, if you, you often it, it's the choice I would have made had I been given the choice, I didn't. It, 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 it cancelled itself out a bit. Bearstead Cricket Club near Maidstone in Kent was formed in 1749, making us one of the oldest cricket clubs in the world. Sadly, due to the current COVID crisis, our season, like all others in the UK cricket world, has been postponed indefinitely. In the absence of cricket, our members will be biking, trekking or running a collective total of 1,749 kilometres on Saturday the 23rd of May, which is roughly the same distance as going from Land's End to John O'Groats via Bearstead in Kent. We will be raising money for brain tumour research in support of our long-standing clubmate Richard Luxton. Brain tumours kill more children and adults under the age of 40 than any other cancer, yet only receive 1% of the national cancer spend. Help us to change this by supporting the Bearstead CC 1749 Challenge through our social media pages at Bearstead Cricket and by donating by heading to Just Giving and searching Bearstead CC 1749. One day soon, we will have that familiar feeling of having our head between our hands after another duck or wicketless day. But until then, please support Bearstead CC 1749 on Just Giving as we bike, trek or run for brain tumor research. Thank you. It's that Badger style. Thank you to Bearstead Cricket Club for that appeal. Thank you to Mike Selvey for the first part of the chat on this edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. It's now time, listeners, to turn me off and to find part two because Mike Selvey part two is out there. It's ready for you. You can delve right in and hear the second part of my chat with the former England test player, journalist, broadcaster, you name it, he's done it. Listen to part two. You'll find out a lot more about the man. I'll see you there. Podcast Network.